You're listening to Alive and Powerful with Pastor Scott Morrison. Alive and Powerful is the radio ministry of Foothills Calvary, a fresh and growing fellowship in Lakewood, Colorado. We invite you to come and join us as we study the Word together, Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. We meet at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. For more information about Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. That's foothillscalvary.org. We hope you are blessed by today's message. Now, here's Pastor Scott. Um, This is the last lesson in James today. Um, It's it's a great book. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. Um, At one point, I was trying to memorize the whole book of James. My brain doesn't work that way. So I'll just settle with reading it and remembering certain passages that make the biggest impact. Um, so I would encourage you, we've, we've gone through it, you know, at a, at a pretty good pace, but I encourage you to go to it on your own, that you would um, dig in a little deeper, that you would stay focused on what it is that God has to say to you through that um, as well. So, so keep going back to it. It is, it's the Holy Spirit that illuminates the word and applies it to our lives. And I can't tell you how many times as I've read even the book of James and I've gone back to it and had another one of those aha moments. Wow, that was in there? Wait, I didn't see that before. And I've spent a lot of time in there. So spend some time dissecting it. Um, James 4 made an impact in my life and it's part of my daily and weekly uh, life as I grow and mature in the Lord as well. Last week we stopped at a, a verse 11. I felt like we needed to spend a little more than a couple minutes on verse 12 uh, in the title this morning, Honor and Power in Spoken Words, James 5, 12 through 20. The reality is that, that Jesus is coming, and, and we need to be thinking about that. We need to be longing for that. We need to be cognizant of that, because when he comes, he's going to bring judgment over our actions and our words, even as believers. Um, all those things will be judged. Uh, he's going to burn away all that stuff that's bad. Um, and focus in on those things that are good, but we will be judged for our words and our actions. Words that even seem good can cause damage, if not of the Holy Spirit's direction. As we see repeatedly, unfortunately, through the Word of Faith movement and and other so-called ministries and even cults that, that misuse the Word of God, they tangle those things up and use those things for God for their own benefit, not God's glory or God's benefit. So even good words can cause damage. Verse 12, but above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or earth or with any oath, let your yes be yes, your no be no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Um, as a kid, uh, anybody ever say, I swear on my grandma's grave or... Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. What does that even mean? It's kind of morbid, stick a needle in my eye. It means to attest to the faith of something, to solemnly assure someone that the truth has indeed been spoken. For example, I did not eat the whole bucket of candy that I took home for Halloween. Cross my heart. (laughs) I don't hope to die, but you you know the thing. This phrase most likely originated as a religious oath based on a sign of the cross. It generally is accompanied by a hand gesture, such as crossing one's hands over the heart or breast and pointing the right hand to the sky and different variants um, of that. I don't know, do kids still do that today? 
I don't know. I haven't heard my granddaughters do it. Maybe you do it. Any of you do it? Well, you're not going to admit it in front of people. It was first recorded in 1908. That's where that kind of comes from. As James wrote this book, it was to the culture of the Jews that, that made a distinction between binding oaths and non-binding oaths. If an oath was made without including the name of God, it was a non-binding oath. And this type of oath would be the same thing as telling somebody you're going to do something, but you're crossing your fingers behind your back while you're telling them that you're going to do it. These are the types of oaths that James was condemning. He doesn't want them to swear deceptive oaths. He doesn't want things that are said just unwise or flippantly. So we have to remember the great words of that theologian, my son, Brandon Morrison, <clears throat> words matter. Words matter. Swearing oaths aren't all bad, though. There are occasions in the Bible we see God swear an oath, and you guys can look later at Luke 1.73 or Hebrews 3.11 or even Hebrews 6.13. But our Bible shows us that both holy men and God there's examples of them swearing a holy oath in the Old Testament and New Testament. And throughout our study in the last few weeks, we see James alluding to the teachings of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. And I've made me want to go back and start studying again the Sermon on the Mount and just reading through it because it's so rich. But he really comes into, into play in our text today with Matthew 5, 34 through 37. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be, yes, yes, or no, no. Anything else, anything beyond this is of evil. In Matthew, in verse 37 of Matthew, Jesus discouraged oath-taking because it amounted nothing more than just human words. What are our words? Do they have that value? When we break an oath, it reflects badly on our godly character. It reflects badly on the Lord Jesus. And there's times where I have definitely failed in this in the 56 years of my life on this planet. We've got to be intentional with our promises. We have to be intentional with our vows, with our words. As believers, our simple words should be just as trustworthy as any vow, if you as a Christian say something, then let it be so. Let it be so. The reality is that if our lives are not lived in such a way that our yes and our no carry enough weight on their own, then, then we have some surrendering to do. We have some adjustments to make. Our character should be enough to confirm our words. Are you living your life in such a way that as people hear you say something, they know that it's true? They can trust what it is that you say. According to this scripture, a lack of character will be exposed at the judgment seat of Christ. So again, are we awaiting with anticipation for Christ's return? And while we're waiting, are we engaged in meaningful, mutually beneficial conversations with those that God has put around us? God puts people around us on a continuous basis. Do we ignore it or do we engage? What is it that God has to say? See, the problem is we try to put too much of ourselves into that. Oh, this person's here. Got to take him down the Romans road. Let me throat punch them. No, let's love on them. Let's share some hope. 
Let's share some encouragement. Let's let the Holy Spirit work through us. Let's engage. It should motivate us all the more to prepare in our daily walk for that judgment that is coming. And we should prepare in our daily walk of, of, of speaking with each other of speaking with intentionality and, and being intentional in such a way that our words have integrity. And the tagline on my business when I was uh, doing cabinetry it was custom corners and, and it was quality uh, and integrity that is affordable. Sounds kind of cheesy now as I say it. <clears throat> but it worked. But it worked. Like because it really was about reputation. The only time that I got really bad jobs are the times where I tried to pass out flyers door to door. Those were the worst jobs I ever got. The best jobs were the referrals because quality and integrity was there and it was affordable and it paid my bills, right? So is that what is seen in and through your life? The admonition may seem out of context to us, yet Moffat says James jotted down this afterthought to emphasize a warning of James 5.9. In excitement or irritation, there's always a temptation to curse or swear violently or profanely. Be careful about the words. You know, how, you know what, what happens. Get a little amped up. There's an accident. You get hurt. You, what words come out first? Be careful. Guard yourself. I've shared that testimony about how by me not cussing and smashing my thumb on the job site, somebody else shared the gospel with that wasn't a believer. They shared the gospel with somebody else. Like, let that be your response. Praise Jesus. My thumb is going to heaven before me. <clears throat> Something other than a swear word. Following the rest of Jesus, Peter denied knowing him three times. After the third denial, he heard the rooster crow and he recalled the, the prediction that Jesus, as Jesus turned back to him, Peter began to cry bitterly. The final incident is known as the repentance of Peter. The, the first denial, right? Here's that pressure. The girl at the door to the courtyard. No, I don't know him. The second denial, the servant by the fire in the courtyard. No, absolutely, I don't know him. And the third denial, a man by the fire in the courtyard, and including some swear words in there. And, swearing that he did not know him than the first crow. See, again, the power of our words in daily interactions, it's, it's in the heat and the passion of that moment, those, those words reveal who we are. And once they're out there, can you reel them back in? <laughs> you can't. Now, there is forgiveness, and that can be ex extended to us, but that's a hard journey as well. Once those words are out, not condemning, not judging, not swearing like a sailor or a construction worker. And it's funny that you talk to different people and like, oh man, my job's the worst. Man, these, these guys, they cuss more than anybody I know. And everybody goes back and forth about what they think is the worst. And my worst experience as far as language and vulgarity actually came as I was doing cabinets and I'm installing them in a very professional office building, office space. And the women of that floor were the most vulgar women, most vulgar human beings I have ever encountered in my life. Be careful what you say and how you present yourself. Don't get caught up in the crowd and what everybody else is saying just because it's acceptable to them doesn't mean it's acceptable to you as a follower of Christ. Amen? All right, so 
This is not about saying bad words in an angry tirade. This is about making oaths, being a man or woman of integrity. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. I've heard of a man who was determined to learn the lesson that once a week, so he was so determined to learn about the power of words that for, for one day a week, for 40 years, he took that one day and he fasted from talking. How many of you could be quiet for one full day? I'm not going to admit it. That would be hard. I don't know that I could do it. When we speak, is it so we can hear our own voice? Or is there something worthwhile to say? Are we guarding our words? Proverbs 10:19 says, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Guys, how many times have you been with your wife and you're talking and there things get a little bit, you know, I don't want to say heated because that never happens with you guys ever. It's more wise for you to zip your lip, isn't it? Just be quiet. So I learned this with my mom as a kid, as a teenager. If I would just shut this thing, it would go a lot easier. Shut my mouth. Listen. So he who restrains the lips is wise. You see, the more I talk, the more trouble I can get into. James very practically says we are to keep our speech as simple and straightforward as possible. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Then James shifts to the thoughts of caring for others as we're in our passage. This exhortation is that we as Christians meet the needs of others. This is us in our faith, walking in our faith, reaching out and caring for others. Actions that practically meet needs, but even in those actions... It's using our words. It's using our voice to meet other people's needs. It's engaging with them in conversation and in prayer. Look at verses 13 and 14. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He must sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and there to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So a question I ask our our, prayer, our team, that, that we do our team huddle and pray over the service before we start. We make sure we have all of our servants where we need them to be. And one of the things I, I ask them about the prayer ministry is, and, and who else can pray? So who in this room, who needs to pray? Anybody in the room need to pray? Like all of us, every one of us needs to pray. Who needs to sing psalms of praise? And I, man, I need them need the worship music. I need to sing. Who should call on the elders of the church to pray for them? Oh, oh, all of us. And just so you know, your, your elders, Jack and, and Nori, Nori was up here on the keyboards. Jack's sitting back in front of the sound booth there. Call on them, call on me to pray for you. To pray, that's what we're supposed to do. So then why don't we do it more often? That's why I just keep, I know I sound like I'm a, a pit bull sometimes when we're talking about prayer because it's so important. And so for our team huddle in the morning, it's like, hey, when you see somebody, man, press in, see if there's something you could pray for them about. What can you pray for them for before they walk out the door? Today we're having catalyst prayer at the end of second service. It's a time where we have some extended worship, a time where we have different leaders hanging out in, in our prayer team, hanging out in here, and, and just who needs prayer? And we pray. Some, 
Sometimes we have eight people. Sometimes we have a couple more. Sometimes we have three or four. But we're not going to stop doing it. We give opportunity to pray. Why don't we ask for more prayer? Why don't we engage more? I stay up front here. John's up here for, at the end of service for prayer. Once or twice, every once in a while, somebody will come down for prayer. But you know I pray with more people in the foyer than I've prayed with at the altar. It's okay to come to the altar and ask for prayer. It's okay to come to the altar and just pray. There's power in prayer. We're in a safe space. This is a safe place to do it. The suffering need to pray. The cheerful should sing psalms of praise to God. The sick should call for the elders of the church and, and ask for them to pray for their need. Instead of us murmuring and complaining about things, when we suffer, we should pray. Can I just tell you, this week I spent a lot of time in prayer. A lot of time in prayer. When we suffer, when we have need, instead of complaining, instead of griping, instead of, we should pray. Engage in prayer. Regardless of where we are in life, the, the sufferer or the cheerful, run, the cheerful one, we go to the Lord. And that directive could be reversed. Sufferers should sing songs. Man, I had worship on all week too. Worship music going. Just worship the Lord. The cheerful, you don't need to pray, do you? The cheerful should pray. The prayer changes a little bit. God, I thank you for this day. It's beautiful. Praise you for it. We should go to the Lord. That's why I often respond to the cries of others, the prayer requests that I get. Man, like, you know, they're struggling. I'm like, turn on the worship music, get into the word, get those things in, the, in your ears. How many times do we, we get frustrated, we get down, we get depressed, we're going to binge watch that show because it's so uplifting. Real Wives of Los Angeles. I don't know. I don't even know what those things are. Like, that's really? That's what you're going to do instead of, I don't even know what they're called. I know they have those reality shows, but I just want you to know I'm not, I don't watch that show. I don't even know if that's what it is. Confession. I don't. Have no use for it. It's so far from reality. Why don't we, instead of turning on those things that aren't beneficial, why don't we get on that worship music? Why don't we get on that, that, that one pastor that we like to listen to that, that edifies us and we listen to the word? Why don't we put on that app, on that Bible app, where it just reads us the word? Why don't we engage in things that fill us up, that refresh us? Moffat points out elsewhere in the New Testament, the word to sing praises refers to public worship and always if the usage in classical Greek or Greek Old Testament be decisive to songs within a musical accompaniment. Man, worship the Lord. Get the worship music going. The scripture points out to us that it is us when we are in need that need to take the initiative to seek help. He must call and why don't we all do this? I find it hard even for myself. Man, I'm gonna call somebody and ask him for prayer because I'm struggling with this thing. This is a true mystery to me and a true mystery to our elders, though. It's, man, especially on Sundays and days like today's where it's like, hey, if you need prayer, why don't you ask? Everybody can pray for something. It doesn't have to be something big. It could be. It could be huge. It could be something small. Simplicity of, man, I just, I need some of God's grace this week as I go to work. Why do people hesitate in seeking prayer from leadership in church? Is it the fear of what others might think? Oh. They went over to Pastor Scott. He's praying for him. <sighs> Whatever. 
If you see somebody come to me or to Nori or to Jack or you see somebody else on the prayer team praying with somebody, you know what you should do? Pause and start praying. God, you know what's going on in their life. Would you just minister to them and help meet them at that point in need? Confessing a need to someone. Is it showing weakness? Guys, I need your prayers. If that's what I need to show weakness, hey, bring it. I need your prayers. The leaders have a charge. They're to pray over a person's need. They're to anoint the sick person with oil in the name of Jesus. So I would say to you, don't make it hard on your leaders. Don't make them hunt you down. Just ask them to pray. Because I will tell you, we will hunt you down. We will pray with you. Before you get out the door, regardless of where we are in life, we are here to lift each other up. We're here to walk through life. We're here to pray with each other. The anointing oil here, it's been interpreted as either seeking the best medical attention possible for the afflicted. Oil massages were considered medicinal. I'd like to try that out now. But it's also seen as an emblem of the Holy Spirit's presence and power. Anointing oil. It's mentioned 20 times in Scripture. It's used in the Old Testament for pouring on the head of the high priest and, the descendant, and his descendants and sprinkling the tabernacle and its furnishings and marking them as holy and set apart. You can even see the recipe for, for the anointing oil in Exodus 30, it, myrrh, cinnamon, and other natural ingredients in it. There's no indication in Scripture, though, that the oil or its ingredients had any supernatural power. Rather, the strictness and the guidelines that it was creating the oil it was a test in the Old Testament of obedience to the Israelites. It was to demonstrate the absolute holiness of God. When we get to the New Testament, the passage refers to practicing of, of anointing oil. Um, but none of them offer an explanation for its use. We can draw our conclusions in context. Matthew 6, Jesus mentions the everyday practice of anointing oneself with oil. In Mark 6, the disciples anoint the sick and heal them. And in all four Gospels, a woman anoints Jesus as a sacrificial act of worship. And here in James 5.14, the church elders are to anoint the sick with oil for healing. So should Christians use anointing oil today? There's nothing, nothing in Scripture that commands it or suggests that we should use similar oil today. But there's also nothing to forbid it. Me, personally, I... I believe, according to Scripture, it's beneficial. It's beneficial for us to do that. Um, is, is it the supernatural thing? No. Oil is, is an, it's used as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Christians have the Spirit who leads them in all truth and anoints us continually with His grace and comfort. Anointing oil, though, is a, is a point of contact of faith. It, it's, a, it's a symbol. The oil in itself does nothing. Um, here at the church, we have olive oil. It's the same stuff I use on my vegetables and my eggs. My it, it's a symbol. It's a symbol of, of, of us stepping out of faith according to Scripture, exercising our faith, asking God to intervene. It itself has no power. The reality is that we are to ask for prayer. And we in faith, in expectation of God meeting us at that point of our need, as we are anointed with or are anointing someone with oil, it's that faith aspect. It helps us slow down and focus on what it is we're actually praying for. Relying on the power and presence of God. 
And we've got to make sure that we guard against making it something that it's not. And there's too many times that, that this has been abused and taken out of context. The, the snake oil salesmen that I've seen on TV, the, the telesales, I mean televangelists, um, trying to sell little vials of oil for supporting their ministry. You send me 1999, I'm gonna send you this special anointing oil from the Holy Land and you will be healed is their claim. Not biblical. For 29.99, they send you the vial and plant an olive tree. Great. Not biblical. So make sure you pay attention to why we do those things. Be a Berean study. Don't get caught up in, in all the mumbo jumbo of false teachers, especially on TV. The Roman Catholic Church mutated this command to anoint the sick into the sacrament of extreme unction. Administer to someone to prepare that one for death. Is that what you get out of that scripture we just read? I'm not sure how they got that. Something James intended for healing was made into a preparation for death. That's not of God. Clark said oil was and is frequently used in the East as a means to cure every dangerous disease. In Egypt, it's often used to cure the plague. Even in Europe, it's been tried with great success in cure of dropsy. Pure oil is excellent for re recent wo wounds and bruises. I've seen it tried this way, the best effects. James desires them to use natural means, but, but while looking to God for that special blessing, and no wise men would direct otherwise. See, we've talked about it before. God answers our prayers, the prayers of his people, and that answer may look a little different than what you think it should, but, but is he being glorified through that answer? Yeah, he will be glorified. However he answers that prayer, he's hearing you if you ask. Verses 15 and 16, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up. If he's committed sins, he will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so you might be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. Believe it? I believe it. Now, I, I believe it, even though I'm sitting here with a broken knee and kidney stones and a collapsed disc in my back. I still believe it. I still believe that God heals the sick even though we lost Pam. Jesus decided to take her home. I still believe it. And I won't stop praying. See, Charles Stanley says this. He said, no Christian has ever been called to go it alone in his or her walk of faith. Listen, we cannot obey God without being in regular, close fellowship with other believers. He has designed us that, that many of our needs can only be met through mutual independence. Okay, there's that, that interdependence that we have with each other. We are the body of Christ. We take those needs to the Lord together. We don't do it alone. You see, it's in these relationships that we receive and we give accountability. It's in these relationships that we have that, that we give and receive exhortation where we encourage each other, where we help each other mature, where we bring counsel. That's what helps us run after God. That's what helps us mature in our faith. It's when we are together. Many have wondered if James guarantees healing here for the sick who are prayed for in faith. 
Some interpret this as a reference to the ultimate resurrection, being in heaven in the presence of God. That's, we're all going to be healed then. <laughs> Done, right? The reference Or the reference to sins being forgiven. That's the idea that James is considering a spiritual work and healing. Not necessarily a physical healing. It ties into Jesus' words saying that we will do even greater things than he. Well, man, what's greater than what Jesus did? He, he healed the lame. He healed the blind. He delivered the demonic. Yet there's going to be a greater thing that we're going to do? What is that greater thing? That greater thing is salvation. We are going to have the opportunity to lead others to salvation. That's the greater thing, salvation through Jesus Christ. And yes, it may involve physical healing. It, it might involve gifts of the Holy Spirit being used directly to draw that person or persons to Christ. I mean, I've told you, I've seen some amazing miracles throughout ministry, mostly on missions trips, mostly on, the, on those times where we're really pressing in. God just shows up and does amazing things. So I believe in those things. But what is the focus of all that? It's always to draw people to Christ. It's not to, to make a person look good or strong or powerful in ministry. It's to draw people to Christ, period. Any miracle, any move of the Holy Spirit. Regardless, a prayer offered in faith will bring restoration and healing. And there's the hard part. We should pray for others in faith, expecting that God is going to heal them but we then leave the matter in God's hands. If you and I are commanding and demanding and jumping up and down and working everybody into a lather, which I've done in the Pentecostal church and I've asked for forgiveness for, if that's what we're doing, we're out of step with what God's word says. It does nothing. As we say here at Calvary Chapel, simply teach the word of God simply, right? That, that's what we wanna do. And then we get to worship. We, we simply worship God simply. We simply fellowship with other believers simply. So the same aspect plays into prayer. Simply pray. Simply. Lift the request before the Lord. Simply. You don't have to pray in the King James, if you know that language. Or some eloquent manner using Greek and Latin. Simply pray in faith. Pray passionately by all means, but pray biblically. We can all attest to the fact that God is not a genie and does not grant every wish we have, and that there's not immediate answers for healing to every prayer offered in faith. And many times the answer is different than we think it should be, and we have to remember we don't know God's ways and thoughts. They're higher than ours. We don't always see the big picture of what he's accomplishing in us individually, or through us in that situation. So the question then is, does this mean that we stop praying? Well, God didn't answer that last prayer. Meh. No. How many are not healed simply because there is no prayer of faith even offered? And when I get to heaven, I, want, I don't want God saying, you know, man, well done, my good and faithful servant. But if you would have prayed for that one person, I would have healed them. Or if you would have prayed for that one need, I would have provided for it. Or if you would have just trusted me in that area and prayed, I would have met you there. Like, I don't want to hear that. I don't pray for everybody and everything all the time. 
the best approach in praying for the sick is to pray with a humble confidence that they will be healed. Unless God clearly and powerfully makes it clear that, that that's not his will. And that's, that's a hard part too. Why are we going through the things we're going through? Why wasn't Pam healed? I, God's still working that out in me. But if God hadn't gotten, bre- if Pam hadn't gotten breast cancer, I wouldn't be the pastor of this church. That sounds weird, doesn't it? If Pam hadn't had AML, I wouldn't have accepted the position here. Well, that doesn't sound right either, does it? Does it make sense? Like, what is it that God is doing in and through those things that we're walking through in life right now? Do we see him moving? Do we see him preparing us? Do we see him paving the way that we didn't think we were going to go? All right, I'm getting off track. We're going to be here forever. All right. I better stand up. Having prayed, we simply leave the matter to God. I would also ask, how many times do we not pray because maybe we're concerned for God's reputation? I mean, what if I pray for that person and they're not healed? Is that on you? It's not on us. Is not God the author and creator of everything we know? Is he not all-knowing and all-powerful? I think we should remember that God is big enough to handle his own reputation. So step out in faith and just pray. Leave it up to God. Hi, this is Pastor Scott from Foothills Calvary. I hope the Lord is speaking to you through today's message. I wanted to just take a second and invite you to join us for worship services at Foothills Calvary. We meet Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m. at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. If you'd like more information on Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. Now let's get back to our study. I pray that the Lord will continue to speak to you by his Holy Spirit. Now, not that this hasn't already been hard, but he goes on. It's going to get harder. You ready? You okay? Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. This is where accountability and true freedom come in to play physically, into play physically and spiritually. James reminds us that mutual confession and prayer brings healing. Confession can free us from heavy burdens and unresolved sin physically and spiritually to one another. Confession to another in the body of Christ is essential because sin will demand to have us to itself, isolated from all others. Sin draws us away from people, away from God. Confession breaks that power of secret sin. That confession need not be made to a priest or any imagined mediator. We simply confess to one another as appropriate. Confession is good but must be made with discretion. An unwise confession of sin can be the cause of even more sin. Clark observes that if this passage actually refers to the Roman Catholic practice of the professional, then the priest should likewise confess his sins to the people. Turn that around. He also adds there's no instance of auricular confession where the penitent and the priest pray together for pardon. But here the people are commanded to pray for each other that they may be healed. 
Noting from the context, sin should be especially confessed where physical healing is necessary. It's possible, though by no means always the case, that a person's sickness is the direct result from some sin that has not been dealt with. And Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 11.30, pointing out that many are weak, many are sick and dead for lack of confession. But we must be careful to not pass judgment. This next scripture is not in the slides. It's John 9.2. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Remember the story? Jesus responded, neither. He's blind so I could be glorified. Beyond our thought, our thinking, isn't it? Hybrid on confessing, the root form means literally to say the same thing. Hence, it means that in confession, in confessing, confessing sin, we agree to identify by its true name and admit that it is sin. When God reveals to us that there's sin in our life, take care of it. One, go to God. Go to him first. In the early church, it was openly done before the body. The idea of not entering into prayer or worship or the word with a guilty or bad conscience. And I've seen similar aspects of this on missions trips. I've, I've seen it in youth ministry early on. In Mexico, I watched as, as people would come into church night after night. The first thing they did is they came to the altar. And they, they humbled themselves before the Lord. They asked for forgiveness. They asked that God would fill them up with the Holy Spirit and that they could hear the word. And they went and sat down. We saw powerful miracles in that church. And then in youth ministry, again, I, as a youth pastor, one Wednesday evening in youth service, we're having communion, and I noticed that one of my student leaders didn't take communion. So I went and asked her, what was up? She said, well, you know, I had a disagreement with somebody this week, and I was in the wrong. I need to go ask them for forgiveness before I take communion. And I just got schooled by a middle schooler. She wanted her heart right before she went before the Lord. In North China revivals under Jonathan Goforth, confession was most invariably the prelude to blessing. One writer describing the significant Korean revivals associated um, said, we may have our theories of the desirability and undesirability of public confession of sin. I have had mine. But I know that when the Spirit of God falls upon guilty souls, there will be confession and no power on earth can stop it. However, listen, this is not normal for us. Public confession of sin has a potential for great good or for bad. So there's some guiding principles that, that can help us. And David Guzik said the following, confession should be made to the one sinned against. Well, that's where you go. So first we go to God, and then we go to the person that we sinned against. Ask for forgiveness. Make sure, make things right. Um, or says that the most Christians display a preference for confession in secret before God, even concerning matters which involve other people. To confess to God seems to then to be the easiest way out. If offenders were really conscious of the presence of God, even secret confession and private sin would have a good effect. Alas, most offenders merely commune with themselves instead of making contact with God, who refuses their prayer under certain conditions. In the words of our Lord, it is clear that sin involving another person, person should be confessed to that person. Man, you've sinned against somebody, go to them. If somebody sinned against you, go to them, right? We've been talking about that the last few weeks. 
Confession should often be public. Not always, but often. Public confession must be discreet. Often confession needs to be no more than what is necessary to enlist prayer. It can be enough to say publicly, pray for me, I need victory over this sin. It'd be wrong to go into more detail and saying that much, though, is important. It keeps us from being, let's pretend, Christians, right? Are you going to be real with somebody when you're asking for prayer, when you're confessing that you're struggling? Or also says that almost all sexual transgressions are either secret or private or should be so confessed. A burden too great to bear may be shared with a pastor or a doctor or a friend of the same sex. Scripture discourages even the naming of immorality among believers and declares that it's a shame to even speak of things done in secret by the immoral. This is distinguishing between secret sins and those which directly affect others. J. Edwin Orr, again, he says, uh, it gives a good principle, if you sin in secret, confess in secret. Admitting publicly that you need victory, but keeping the details to yourself. If you sin openly, confess openly to remove stumbling blocks from those that you have hindered. If you've sinned spiritually, prayerlessness, lovelessness, unbelief, the offspring of that, which is criticism, then confess to the church that you have been a hindrance to the body. Confession is often made to people, but before God. At the same time, we notice that James says, confess your trespasses to one another. One of the interesting things about confession of sins that I've noticed in the writings of Jehovah and Noor is that the confessions are almost always addressed to people, not to God. It isn't that you confess your sin to God and others merely hear you. You confess your sin before others and ask them to pray that you get things right before God. There's a purpose in the confession. It's not just to get it off your chest. It's to change the way. It's to stop doing what you're doing. That's the repentant piece when we go before the Lord. We ask for forgiveness of our sins. We repent of them, meaning we turn away from those things. In confessing with each other, it brings in accountability. Now you've got somebody else who's saying, hey, how are you doing with that thing? Are you on track with what the Lord has told you to do? Confession should be appropriately specific. When open confession of sin is appropriate, more than the public stating of spiritual need, but confessing open sin or sin against the church, it must be specific. If I made any mistakes, I'm sorry, is no confession of sin at all. You sin specifically, confess specifically. It costs you nothing for a church member to admit in, prayer, in a prayer meeting, I am not what I ought to be, but it costs more to say, I ought to be a better Christian. It costs no more to say, I ought to be a better Christian, but it does cost something to say, I have been a troublemaker in this church or I have done this thing wrong and caused harm to you. It's going before them in repentance and confessing that sin or maybe saying I have bitterness towards certain leaders in the church or uh, I, I, I need to go to them and I need prayer that God would give me wisdom and discernment and strength to do that. Confession should be thorough. Some confessions are not thorough. They're too general. They're not made to the person concerned. They neglect completely the necessary restitution. Or they make no provision for a different course of conduct in which sin is forsaken. That's where accountability comes into place. Confession must have honesty and integrity. If we confess with no real intention of battling the sin, our confession isn't thorough and it mocks God. There's a story told of an Irish man who confessed to his priest that he had stolen two bags of potatoes. The priest had heard the gossip around the town and said to the man, Mike, I, 
I heard that it was only one bag of potatoes that was stolen from the market. The Irish man replied, that is true, Father. But it was so easy, I plan on taking another one tomorrow night. <laughs> Better ask for forgiveness and permission, I guess. By all means, avoid phony confession. Confession without true brokenness or sorrow. If it isn't deeply real, then it isn't any good. Don't waste your words. But then to those of us who hear a confession of sin, those of us who hear that confession, we have a great responsibility. There, there are things that are told to me, things that have been told to me in this altar, in my office, in the foyer, things that are heavy. When those things are told to us as leaders or, or elders, it's heavy. Those that, that hear those confessions have to have a proper response, not one of shock and awe, but one of love, one of an accessory prayer, not human wisdom, not gossiping or sharing the needs in the prayer chain. We keep that. We surrender it to the Lord. We don't carry it. It's not ours to carry. We surrender it to the Lord. Real, deep, genuine confession of sin has to be a feature of every genuine awakening or revival. It has been the last 250 years but it isn't anything new. It was demonstrated in the book of Acts, in Acts 19, 17 through 20, and that's not in the slides either. This became known to you all, both Jews and Greeks who came to live in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified, and many also, those who had believed, kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices, and many who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone, and they counted up the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. That was through repentance and putting those things down. These are the things that I should not be engaging in. It needs to go. I'm going to burn it. That should be our attitude. True repentance in, in Christians getting right with God. Open confession, that was part of it. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. In writing about the need of prayer for the suffering, for the sick and the sinning, James points out the effective nature of prayer. It's fervent, and it's offered by a righteous man. Fervent and passionate is a passionate intensity, very strong, a very strong prayer of a righteous man. Simple, passionate, to the point, faith-filled prayer. That should be every single one of us. Clark said, long prayers give no particular evidence of divine inspiration. As I talk with leaders and different ones about even coming up here to, to do announcements, read the scripture, and to pray, panic. I'm going to pray in front of people out loud with a microphone. Simple prayer. We're the ones that make it hard. Just go before the Lord. Keep it simple. Much of our prayer is not effective simply because it's not fervent. If it's offered with a lukewarm attitude, it virtually asks God to care about something that we care little about. Effective prayer must be fervent, not because we must emotionally persuade a reluctant God, but because we want to gain God's heart by being fervent for the things he is fervent for. It shows the importance of us being right in right standing with God. If your relationship isn't right with God, then what do you expect? A righteous man, someone who recognizes the grounds of righteousness that it resides in Jesus Christ and his personal walk is generally consistent with the righteousness that he has in Jesus righteous man or woman is in right standing with God. 
And James gives us an, an example of answered prayer in verses 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, the sky poured rain, and the earth produces fruit. You see, Elijah is a model of earnest prayer, and it was answered by God. His effectiveness in prayer extended even to the weather. It shows Elijah's heart was in tune with God's heart. He prayed, the rain stopped. And it started because he sensed that it was the heart of God in his dealings with Israel. To truly pray, by definition, is to pray earnestly. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and this being true, we then can be men and women with the power of prayer like him. It's another reason I love the men and women of the Bible that God gives us as examples. They're not perfect. But in times of strength, they're there. And in times of obedience and times of weakness and failure, they're there as examples. And God uses them, and that means that he can use you and I. Yes, bless you. We close with instruction on helping a sinning brother. Verses 19 and 20. My brethren, if any of you strays with the truth and one turns him back, let, it, let him know that he who turns a sinner from error in his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. If any among you strays from the truth and introduce topics of sin and confession, James reminds us the need for comfort, the need to confront those who have wandered from the truth. And we as a church, we're here to restore. We're here to bring healing through God's word, if at all possible. It's to point people in their relationship with Christ and to renew that. That's the first priority. If they stray from the truth, it, this is a good picture here. Most people don't wander deliberately. This just sort of happens. Nonetheless, they get off track and, and possibly they get in danger. And Spurgeon points out, re, and we read the verse and you see that it was out of the backslider. It was that of a backslider from the visible church of God. The words, if any of you, must refer to a professed Christian. Okay, I'm a professed Christian and I've walked away. I've turned back. It shows us that God hasn't, human instruments and uses us in helping to turn sinners back from the errors in their ways. God doesn't need us, but he uses us to bring him glory. You see, the apostle Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, was converted not through any human instrument. Jesus went down and met him, knocked him off his high horse. No one preached to him. Jesus directed his conversation to him personally. One reason God uses human instruments is because it brings him more glory than if he were to do it on his own by himself. In this way, God is like the skilled workman who makes incredible things using the worst of tools. After the same pattern, God uses earthen vessels to be containers of his glory. Along this line, we can say that when we refuse to make ourselves available to God's service, weak and failing as we are, we in fact rob him of his glory he can glorify himself through this weak vessel, this weak vessel like you and I, and we should simply let him do it. It's truly when we are weak that we are the strongest. Backsliders. I have a heart for them. That's, that was me. I walked away from God as far as I could get. He brought me back. Now I have a heart for those who have walked away from God because I know there's restoration for the prodigals. And there's a balance of speaking boldly in their lives and allowing the Holy Spirit to bring conviction he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul, save their soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. It's a blessing for the one who loves a brother or sister enough to confront them and turns them from the error of their way. Ministry's messy. 
You're going to engage with some people and it's going to get a little ugly, but it's okay. You're saving their soul from eternity in hell. But remember, it takes work, it takes dedication. Remember that you are not the Holy Spirit, you're just a tool in God's toolbox. James concludes with this because it's exactly what he has endeavored to do through his whole challenging letter to confront those who have wandered from a living faith, endeavoring to save their, save their souls from death, demanding that not only they hear the word, but they do it because a living faith will have its proof. Our study here in James ends abruptly. There's no goodbye to the readers, There's no, uh, but there is a last word of instruction. It's focused on watching for those who may wander from faith. And God has a purpose and a plan for each one of our lives, and it's revealed as we surrender and live a life in humility before the Lord. So our final exhortation is to honor God in letting our yes be yes and our no be no, to be a man and woman of the Lord that keeps our word. Don't be afraid to confess your sins before the Lord and before those you have offended, even the body of Christ if necessary, and ask others to go before the Lord with you. Take your need in faith and expectation to the elders. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the power and the life that it gives us. Father, would you help us be obedient? Would you help us to be persons of our word, honoring you by letting our yes be yes and our no be no? And Lord, we pray, may we pray with each other with fervency, not being afraid to, to ask for prayer. Help us to sing songs of praise. Help us to take care of sin between each other and help us to go to you and then and to the person we've sinned against. Help us to, to seek forgiveness, knowing that the removing of sin it's a lifelong process. We're not going to be over that battle until we stand in your presence. So, so strengthen us in doing that daily. Knowing that as we confess that sin daily, as we remove it daily, that we find peace and see healing in our lives. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and strengthen us that we may honor you with our whole being. In Jesus' name. Every Sunday, we have an altar call opportunity, and, and we also, on the first Sundays uh, of each month, uh, we do communion together as a family, and uh, this is the first Sunday, and uh, I know the last time we did it, we did a really long communion, and this one's a little more short, short and to the point, but, but before we even get to that, the whole purpose of what we do as a ministry, the whole purpose uh, of, of why we're here in this building is to draw people to Christ, is to point people to the cross. And if you don't have a relationship with, with the Father today, if, if you haven't surrendered your life, today's the day that you can do that. Or maybe you have walked away from that relationship and you need to restore it. You need to step back into it. Today's the day that you take care of that. And when we celebrate communion, we're celebrating the fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He died for your sins. That blood that was shed covers your sins, removes them. It gives us that opportunity to repent and have a restored relationship with God the Father. God's word simply says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart with, that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Confess and believe. That simple. A conversation from your heart to God's heart. So if you feel that the Holy Spirit is prompting you this morning, I'm gonna ask you to say a simple prayer and it's a conversation from your heart to God's heart. And so with every head bowed, every eye closed, I'm gonna ask you to pray something like this. Say, dear God, 
I know I need you in my life. And I ask that you forgive me. Forgive me for being prideful. Forgive me for my sins. I simply submit to you and confess. I confess that Jesus is Lord and I believe that you, God the Father, raised him from the dead. So Jesus, please be Lord of my life. Help me. Use me to bring the hope of the gospel to others. Help me to share my story of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, want to talk to you, just reach out to me, let me know. If you prayed it online, you can shoot me an email, scott at foothillscalvary.org as well. This has been Alive and Powerful with Pastor Scott Morrison. We hope you were blessed by today's message. Alive and Powerful is the radio ministry of Foothills Calvary, a fresh and growing fellowship in Lakewood, Colorado. We invite you to come and join us as we study the Word together, Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. We meet at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. For more information about Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. That's foothillscalvary.org.